Wrestling. My name is Andrea Akwa Welcome to The Only Black Girl on Mars, a podcast where we shine a spotlight on strong black women who are shaping the world through their diverse strengths, paired with their unique perspectives and experiences. The Only Black Girl on Mars is an independently produced podcast. So please click the dollar sign in order to support us on Patreon or head to patreon.com slash blackgirlonmars underscore. Hi, everyone. This is your host, Andrea Kwamya, and we are back with an extremely exciting episode. I hope you enjoyed the brief feature of Yolanda last week, and I hope that you were able to attend her event today where she launched women of color in fundraising and philanthropies. But today I am speaking to my guest, Jessica Mixon, also known as Jane Mix. And she is a podcaster, a creator, a performer, a musician. And we went into a very delicate topic um, about mental wellness, about black families, about growing up with anxiety and It was something that I wanted to give the utmost care in order to give you a wonderful episode today. The conversation that we had was quite lengthy. So later this week, I will be posting a little bonus track, which has some behind the scenes of our conversations and pieces that we weren't able to put in this full episode. So without further ado, enjoy. I I keep finding like little treats as I'm as I'm digging into learning more about you, but um, so there's so much. Like I just like go from one thing to another. It's uh, it's. <laughs> I'm the same way. I like I find it encouraging because I'm like everyone always like shits on generalist, but we mm-hmm. have so many skills. Like we can pivot. We can, and this is like we're we're building our own empires. So you know, like kudos exactly. You can basically build your own community where you can basically do everything. You can put your foot in everything. (laughs) Well, let me officially welcome you. Um, Thank you for joining us, Jane Mix, um, to the Only Black Girl on Mars podcast. Um, We are so excited to have you. And, you know, when when we first got connected and I looked more into you and the self-aware millennial, the podcast community that you're building, I was really, um, I was really encouraged. It really helped fulfill sort of the, the vision that I have in terms of connecting um, with the black community. But I feel like your mission, I, I love the mission that you have in general to just kind of open up that authentic um, side of being uh, in, your, in, your, in our late 20s, early 30s, and, and trying to grow up in a world that's changing and and progressing in in ways that we hope will be beneficial to the future so so thank you again but uh, what what was your motivation what was the inspiration for you to start the self-aware millennial it was a combination of things the first thing first and foremost was these conversations that i was already having with people with it not even being recorded and just like having these insightful, very thoughtful, cathartic revelations with others that I wanted to be able to share with a wider audience. Not that it wasn't beneficial for 
the intimate space that I was with other people. But like, I'm like, this is the kind of stuff that needs to be seen and heard with a megaphone across the entire world so that it can better our humanity overall. So I said, okay, these are great conversations and I'm going to do something with it. <laughs> Cause I tend to always have really good conversations with folks. And I noticed that I definitely realized it more once I got out of the hospital, the reasoning and the importance behind the conversations that I was having post hospital that I know for me was keeping me out of the hospital again. So I was like, okay, if this is keeping me out of the hospital, it's probably going to keep some other people out too. So like, let me like make this work with everybody. Let me, I mean, I also know I'm not a, I'm not perfect person. I know that there are definitely going to be times where I say things and then I look back on it and I'm like, why did I say that? But I think being self-aware is understanding that you can make mistakes and that you can click, you can correct yourself. You can evolve. Like it's evolution. Yeah, yeah so, that's a growing process. I mean, there would be no evolving if we got everything right the first time. So, I mean, exactly. I think that that makes a lot of sense. And and I know you were, t- you were referring to, um, you know, self-admitting and, in a mental wellness center. And, and I know we're going to go a little bit deeper into that, but I think um, just knowing that that was the original encouragement, which I, I completely agree with a lot of uh, individuals, myself included, who deal with struggles, their main goal is to allow people to have the resources to not have to, to go through that themselves. Yeah. 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 So exactly. I think that's incredible. Um, but before we get into the, into back to that topic, you know, um, I think it's important to kind of go into your background and everything you're, you're in New Orleans. And I know you, um, you also, like you said, you grew up going to predominantly white institutions and even lived through Katrina. So, um, which, which pieces of that also kind of influence your work and sort of guide you is it is it honestly it was a continuation of my childhood up till now it's like kind of like being able to look back and see what I didn't understand then and what I know now um because I did grow up okay so I should say I grew up in the predominantly white institutions but all my other communities that I was a part of were black so it was very difficult separating the two sometimes because like they'll kind of intertwine where you want to be like, especially around like my black community, even family and like people that I went to church with, like I would be the person that always talk, you know, a little more, more white as they like to say, or like I have this proper, this proper dialect. And even to this day, like I'll go up North and people are like, where are you from? And I'm like, I'm from New Orleans. And they're like, you're not from New Orleans. And I'm like, yes, mm-hmm. I am. Do people call you an Oreo? That's what they used to say. Yeah, they used to call me an Oreo, like everything. So (laughs) um, (laughs) I think having those revelations throughout my childhood is the main reason, part of the reason why I find what I'm doing right now is so important because I think there's a identity, there's an issue with identity of people like me that 
we don't necessarily know where to fit in and it's and uh, all I can remember right now is that I went to elementary school up till middle and high school up elementary and middle school it was actually a very diverse school I will say that I went to a very diverse like beginning of my school career um I would still say it was white centric because it was a Catholic school and like I would say <laughs> at least like 90% of the entire faculty and uh well the entire staff was white okay <laughs> and I would say a lot of the faculty like the lunch ladies and stuff and anybody like janitor wise they were support staff or people yes so just like looking at our class photos now and I look back on them now and I look at all of the different types of people that I was around like it was completely diverse like people from all different backgrounds black white latina asian like everything right. and I think that thankfully I, I'm happy and blessed that I went to that school because of that reason because I think that was a great foundation in how to I how I treat and see people now because of being around those folks and that's something that even the kids that I went to school with at that point like there was such a long time where before I felt most of the kids started to actually realize the color of their skin like there was a mm. moment in time where like that didn't even matter and I can remember those times um I so feel like that hit me late <laughs> like yeah. later than it should have I I was like in college and I looked around and I was like oh there's there are no black people here <laughs> right yeah it wasn't something that I was I was aware of until I got I would say closer to like middle school and Katrina for me was my eighth grade year and in New Orleans at least a lot of the schools that's kind of like the final middle school grade before you go to high school that eighth grade year was cut short at my middle school because of Katrina and me and my family, we went up north, went up there to evacuate where my older sister was getting her master's. I believe she had already finished, mm -hmm. but she was still up there and she kind of invited us up there to hang with her as well because we couldn't go back home because of- Was your house completely flooded or um, so you lost everything? Yeah, well, we lost most yeah we've pretty much lost everything we got four four feet into our house i believe wow. uh it was four feet into the house i think it was about a month or so before my parents were allowed to go back and to new orleans to start like gutting the house out and everything but we never went with them until like later on um but the other thing was that my parents were driving from illinois which is where my sister was where we were going Okay. Illinois to New Orleans, Illinois to New Orleans, just to fix things. Like it was crazy. When I when I think about it now, I'm like, wow. Like they really went all the way and drove. Like it's about depending on how many breaks or stops you take, it could be eight to twelve hours. Wow. Just looking back on it, I thought that's crazy. But you know that when you have a place that you call home, you do a lot to keep it yeah. your home with parents especially like black parents wanting to create stability for their kids like i feel like they'll go out of their way to make sure that they feel like they're home like my my parents are divorced and i remember 
that we didn't mind if we had moved into a sort of a smaller apartment or someplace temporary, but my mom just really wanted us to be able to have a place that felt like home. So she would rent, she would rent houses temporarily because she wanted us to feel that stability. And I just feel like that, that is, that makes a lot of sense for me that your parents would, you know, use all of their energy just to make sure you guys had the place where you, where you grew up. Yeah. Do you guys still have that home? Yeah, we do. Um, (laughs) Thankfully at that point, it was just weird from like I was I was more on a high because we were not in New Orleans anymore and it was just something different about like it was Illinois the climate's completely different and at this point like fall is coming so like the leaves were changing uh right. we saw deer like there was like hills and things that we just aren't used to so right. I'm like this is great it felt like a vacation in a way mm-hmm. because yeah. of all this um under bad circumstances but like for me like I was I guess and I'm also that I've always been that person I like to look for the good in things but also I'm a kid I'm not as worried about all of these things that my parents were probably worried about and everybody else that are older because my responsibilities is just to be a kid and to go to school right and there was only I think besides me and my sister's there was only about two, I think there was only two other black people in that entire school. In the whole school? They were brother and sister. In her graduating class. So it was a small school in, in general, but like, I think in my graduating class in Illinois, there was only about 10 of us, 11 of us, um, something like that. Maybe 300 kids total, maybe. Okay. That's maybe. still, like, that's yeah. significant. Like, that is... Yeah. right so but the thing was was like for me this was the first time I'm going to a school that's predominantly white and the education system there was also a lot better than New Orleans so it was also challenging educational education wise because it it's it's just it was just a little bit more advanced so um coupling that with like also being around a lot of white people I guess for me was like, I definitely separated the two, but it was difficult seeing like white counterparts for the most part, like understanding and clicking on the things quicker than I was. And then couple the fact that I'm not the same color or like, I can't even like identify nearly as much with them. Right. And it was whatever, I guess. Cause I, I think the biggest thing was, especially with my, my parents and my family, they're like, they want you, they wanted me to have a good education. Long story short, it was a great education. I learned a lot. It's why it was introduced to musical theater. That's how you started um, your interest in becoming a performer, essentially. Uh, Actually, I always had an itch for performing and wanting to be a performer because growing up, I go back a little bit to baby Jess, my older sister, she's a musician. She's a singer. And... So she was already 15 when I was born. So by the time I was like toddler going into like my, you know, little baby Jess age or whatever, mm-hmm. I was engulfed in music around around her like all the time. She, it was the way that she would keep me quiet. She'll just play music. And like she has twins now. And I see a lot of what she did with oh. me. When she, what she's doing with them right now and it's very too, so I'm oh that's so cool 
Yeah, no. Um, I've always want. I always wanted to be a twin. I used to pretend I had a twin when I was like a child. I, if I if I have kids, I kind of want them too because I kind of want one and done. But you know, they're they're <laughs> carrying two kids is not kind to your body. So <laughs> we shall <Yeah>. see. <laughs> yeah, my sister got lucky. That was her first pet. And the other thing is like we're mostly girls in my family, so like having those boys. It just helped level the playing field out so much. It was right, so- right, right. <laughs> Balance out the the XX chromosomes. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, I think that's basically. Yeah, I I got introduced to musical theater there. I got a great education, met an awesome a lot of awesome people, and I would say a lot of people in my class in particular. We have gone. We went through a lot, and mm. I do find that the class of two thousand ten. It, and anyone like in that group like anywhere like I just feel like there's just so many people that I know that are just so uniquely special and like just kind of like killing the game right now so I don't know if it's just that just our group of folks or if I'm just like biased or what but I don't know I well, I, mean, I think that that's an interesting point to make I mean part in parcel to the fact that generation generationally like everyone is hustling has sort of a new entrepreneurial mindset but also you know I, I asked about Katrina because I do feel like there is something about growing resilience at a certain age where it can be it can go one way or another like right when you have an an early trauma even if to you at the time maybe it felt like a vacation like it was something that impeded the regularity of your life and you saw your family saw a way to overcome it or like make the best of it with the resources that you had so i think it makes sense that a lot of um people who were able to overcome such a difficult situation are able to maybe excel or to kind of go for their dreams which is why i think it's always such an interesting interesting thing so yeah I found when we went up to Illinois it was the first time that I really got a chance to see the rest of the world and like just kind of live in a different Mm. almost I feel like just it almost felt like a parallel universe in a way just because I like I was still alive but like I was not in the area that I was used to so it was just a great introduction to like now what I do now with my um with my job, we travel all around the world and like just getting that first hint of me experiencing the I wouldn't say a euphoria of it all, but just like the excitement. So like it gave me once I finally went back to New Orleans, like I'm like, okay, I know I'm back here and I know that this place is ripped to shreds and needs to rebuild. But I knew I did not want to be in New Orleans forever. I did not want to live. And not that I didn't want to lay my roots in New Orleans, but I just didn't, I I knew there was so much more out there now. And I've, I've craved to travel yeah. and to explore. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, do you feel like you still want to um, maybe move or live somewhere else after? I would love um, to, uh, but... I also find that New Orleans is also up and coming and a lot of people come here and visit and a lot of people from around the world. So like the world is coming to me. 
So it's like, (laughs) if I meet some people around this world and they want me to come out to where they are, that's how I would love to do it. Because then I can still be around my family and, you know, be there if they need me. But, you know, I travel, go away for a couple of months or whatever, maybe lay my roots other places. I would love to like have houses in different climates just so I could, if I, if I'm, if I'm, if I'm tired of the heat, I can go somewhere like up north and just chill. And if I feel like being in the heat, I can own a property down south. Like that's how I kind of want. That's how I would ultimately like to live my life. I'm I'm sure you'll get that. So you know, someday I I hope to be at your future beach house somewhere. <laughs> you are you are invited already. We're making it happen now. <laughs> well, I mean, that's really great to to learn and more about your background and and to have the listeners be able to understand a little bit more about where you're coming from. And I know we alluded to earlier the, um, you know, the main topic that we're going to be talking about today, which is really um, a lot of an experience that many of us have dealt with that we never talk about. Um, And that is um, self-care in terms of mental health but by seeking professional care. Um, and in, in, in our particular circumstances, that's um, self-admitting into um, psychiatric or mental health institutions. So first of all, um, this is such a vulnerable topic. So I'm really grateful for us to be able to open up and, and to talk about it, it freely. Um, and when I heard your story, when we were talking the other day, I was, I was just shocked because I was like, Oh, wow. It sounds so similar. Like, you know, um, but I, you know, I, I'll, I'll hand it over to you, but first I just want to, I'll let you tell your story, but when it comes to mental wellness, I am curious before you do, like, what was your impression about, um, depression and seeking care prior to the time where you needed it? Um, um. Mm, that is such a good question. And you know, right before you asked me that question, I was like, I hope she asks me this question. And then you <laughs> did. So, <laughs> but yeah, no, before I actually, before going in, it was a development of feelings. The closer I got to going to the, the hospital, the more accepting I was of others who have gone. But before then, I definitely felt like most people do, especially in the black community that you don't Mm -hmm. need, you don't need medicine. You don't need to take it upon yourself to go to a psych ward or anything that, because then that would make you considered crazy. You wouldn't be able to get a job. And a lot of people, especially in the black community are religious. And the main thing, at least in my in my psyche, I was like, well, I don't need anybody but Jesus or God. Cause, um, you know, I was, you know, people are like, especially, especially when I, when I went to church, you know, the pastor would always be saying things like, you know, like if you have Jesus, you're fine. Just pray to Jesus. It's all going to be okay. Like that was always the cop out when it came to wanting to talk about or when you're experiencing real thoughts and suicidal thoughts, it was like, just, just, just talk, tell Jesus, like he'll, he'll tell you what to do. You'll, you'll feel it. You'll know. Like it was never tangibly like, 
nothing was tangibly ever told to me like as to what to do in yeah, x y and z situation it, they would always try to bring it back to god or jesus and i i especially somebody who's coming into my own at that point i mean i was i was a young adult it was difficult for me to just accept that right because i tried that and i was still in the same you know in the same spot that can also be discouraging when you know you're like you're seeking advice you're doing everything that everyone's telling you to do and you still have these feelings that you already are are having trouble sort of defining that can discourage you even further from exactly. you know from being able to to ask for help or or connect with people you know yeah yeah i had a lot of instances in my lifetime and it's definitely reoccurring within my family dynamic where I've just always been anxious for good reason. I grew up anxious because of things that were done to me when I was, when I was, when I was a child and it's just made me anxious ever since. Mm. Um, I used to get hit a lot by the belt, by the switch. Um, I would just be scared. I would be scared off into like being or being acting the way that the adults wanted me to act in a way. So, if it wasn't me actually getting beaten, it was the fear of getting beaten. And that fear is that it is the same anxiety that I still have any time that I'm, I feel as though I'm going to disappoint someone. Like it still lives with me to this day. Yeah. The other thing that I was dealing with at that point was being cheated on by my boyfriend. And, and if you've ever been cheated on, there is just this whole cycle of emotions that you go through and it's very mm. similar to the emotions that you that you get when you lose someone stages of grief grieving like it, it it was definitely like me going through the emotions of grief in the first one is denial and then the second one is like actually like it, it's a whole cycle so I was going through that multiple times a day sometimes multiple times like it was weird like it was happening every single day but then it would happen in the week overall and then like throughout that month and we decided to continue this relationship because I felt that there was aspects about this relationship that were worth saving the issue was was that there was a lot of self self-reflection on his end that he had to do that had nothing to do with me but I still felt that there was a lot of aspects about our relationship that were worth saving so did you and- make you maintained the relationship while you guys were still sorting all of that out? Correct. It was difficult, but we got through it. Gotcha. The other aspect was just me being in a quarter-life crisis sort of situation. Mm-hmm. And I was still living at home with my parents. It seems as though in my head that everybody had already moved out of their family home and that they're like living on their own or at mm-hmm. least with some roommates, but like not in their family home. Because with me, like I have a big family. I have my parents. I have my grandma and my sisters and my dog, like it was just a whole bunch of people that you just grow up with. And there's already these, these habits that you develop in front of them that you don't develop in front of others. And some of them are toxic and like just kind of being around that. And, and at that point, that's all I had known, knowing Mm -hmm. that I've already gotten this hint of other things in my life of people, of places that, were encouraging me to 
to branch out and like to move out. So like just having that identity and wanting to, to be better. And I think also part of it was my family versus a lot of other black families. Like there's so many women, I would say like a lot of the matriarchs in my life that never moved out of their own homes until they found a man. And then they moved in together and they got married and everything. Like that was their shoe out, if that's a word of. Like of getting out of their home, basically. Yeah. So I didn't know many women in the black community, at least that I was aware of that actually had that time to themselves. Like they've Mm -hmm. always just had a man around. And if they were like, and I'm not counting like my, my grandmothers or anything because they had men and they died. Like my grandfathers, I never met any of my grandfathers because they both died before I was born. But like, it's like, even after they passed, it was like, they, you know, I only saw them taking care of other men. Like yeah so it was like i i want to i wanted to see a woman that didn't have any responsibilities to anyone else and so mm-hmm. that's what i strived for and i i knew me living under the roof of my house that i was at with my family like that was not it and i wanted so much more so when i got with my boyfriend that was one of the main conversations we had i told him yo i know you want to take these extra steps but i gave him a blueprint of like see this this is what I don't want right now. So right. either you can find someone else to fulfill that need. If you want to, you know, move on and actually start your life and, you know, get married with someone else, that's fine. But as for me, this is what I need to happen in my life first before I can commit to you in that way. So thankfully he has, he has stayed with me through it all. He's even helped me try to like get my own place and just like everything so that's great information but I just in terms of the timeline so you you know because I I think you've mentioned a lot of very important things you have this um you have your partner who you know you guys were able to overcome a a moment of infidelity um Mm -hmm. and then you're also trying to figure out your you know, your sense of independence, yourself, your sense of growth, and you're in your mid 20s. Um, is were all of those things happening at the same time? Because I think the language of, of you said that he, he luckily he stayed with you while you're figuring that out. But at the same time, it like, forgive me for saying this, he's also very lucky that you, you stayed with him during that moment. Yeah. Is that correct? Right? I mean, so I'm just curious, like, were you struggling with your your depression prior to even that incident happening? Like, how do you feel all of the all of your emotions sort of flowed in? What what was the pinnacle of you realizing that you you were starting to become or feel suicidal? So a lot of it had to do with my dad, for sure. Mm-hmm. He's very controlling. <laughs> um, and it's something that I've had to forgive him for. Like, I understand now, now that I'm away from it, I understand where it's coming from. And I've just kind of forgiven it. And, you know, we even had conversations on it. 
and you know it was toxic so having to not know it like it's kind of like you know your home your home is supposed to be your safe haven so I think a lot of it harbored from that knowing that I wanted to get out of that sort of situation but not having the resources to do so not having the courage to do so because at this point like I was afraid that I would just be seen I guess to him and to everyone else as like like a traitor of some sort because I because I want more for my life (laughs) right like it's going back to what you were saying about um wanting to be sure that you're pleasing people basically yeah Yeah. I guess in that instance I had a lot of harbored anxiety and emotion from that and wanting to get out and knowing that knowing what I needed to do to get out, but not having the courage to do so. And I think that just kind of ate up at me and then having to deal with my the infidelity and like going through all that, it took, it took a, it took a big toll on me. And I remember also having a lot of PTSD at the time of instances that would happen in my life during childhood. Like at this point, I'm what, at this point, I think it was like 26, 25 when when I was like seven, maybe eight years old, one instance I could remember, I remember it was like re- one of my really dark days. And it's funny. Cause like, even on my dark days, I still like try to go work out and like take care of myself. So it's not that me exercising people are like, Oh, so you're exercising. You're doing all this other good stuff for you. So you must not be depressed. That is not true. Right. Um, there was a child at the park. They were like playing. There was kids playing everywhere, but Kids do all kinds of stuff. They, they, they're running, they're yeah, laughing, but this kid was screaming and a lot of kids normally scream. Like, and it was just in this instance, like this kid was screaming and I immediately thought about in my childhood, listening to my sisters get hit and I, and it, and it kept happening. And like, it was something where like, it felt like my brain had like, you know, like when you're turning on a light switch and the light switch or like the light itself kind of flickers instead of like comes on all the way. That's what my brain felt like. If that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. It definitely felt like it was spazzing and I didn't know exactly what was going on. I was like, okay, this is not good. And that's where I, I think that was one of the main reasons why I said, okay, I I've had enough. And so Mm -hmm. I looked up what PTSD symptoms are and I looked and I was like, this is definitely one of them because I was having PTSD from instances of my childhood. That same night that I went to the hospital, I also had a conversation finally with my whole family because I guess they were they were wondering what was going on with me. And like woke me up in the middle of the night and then I got like really upset because of, of X, Y, and Z. But I remember also during that conversation argument whatever it was like telling them about what was going on with me and my boyfriend there was a sense of release of me finally telling them because at this point I had been with him for several years and everybody loves him everyone knows who he is and they respect him and everything so for them to hear that kind of something like that like it was difficult but I think on my end it was cathartic for me to do it but I wasn't ready for the reactions And I think the reactions is what kind of 
triggered it me going to the hospital mm-hmm. and my I think what got to me though was my grandma's reaction my grandma comes out because she hears the noise it's late at night and I tell her about it too at the same time and she got upset I think it triggered her because of instances in her life that have happened with other men in her life that have I think it probably triggered her in that way but overall that whole conversation that I had it put me in a dark place after the whole after everything was done said and done and I remember sitting in my bed like very shaky very anxious like because I had already been contemplating going to the hospital at this point so I like already kind of had packed a bag just in case like I was going to be staying for a while or whatnot I had done my research because the place that I decided to go to um a friend of mine went to I wasn't just going to go anywhere and just kind of like drive in the distance. I wanted to be able to like go from point A to point B and know that I wasn't going anywhere in between because that could be dangerous. Right. Um, so I took it upon myself. I said, okay, I have all these symptoms. I'm like crying. I'm driving myself. I told my boyfriend via text what was going on. And then I told my older sister. Uh, I think I told both of them after they gave me the... The way this worked out, I drove up, I parked my car. It's it's like 1 a.m. It's like 1 a.m. or something like that. But it was open. Um, it looked it didn't look like it was open from the outside. It was very it was dark for the most part. Like I could see the lobby, but there was like a doorbell. So I rang the doorbell, and uh, I basically just told them that I needed help, <laughs> and. Yeah someone came in they brought me inside and then they asked me a bunch of questions and then finally after a few rounds or whatnot they said okay they're gonna admit me and then they told me but before we do that you know like they they asked me some more questions and then they let me know that I'm not gonna have my phone until I'm until I'm until I leave and then I was like oh shoot and I that's when I like panicked they were like, okay, we're going to leave you for a little bit, do what you have to do. And then, you know, you got, you know, we're going to go bring you to where you need to go. Hospital or private? I think it was a state hospital. Mm-hmm. I went to River Oaks, which is, it's not in New Orleans, but it's in um, Jefferson, which is right outside New Orleans. It's a different, it's like the, the neighboring parish. So I text my sister that I'm going to be fine. Like, don't worry about me. If you need me, I'm I'll be here. Like just contact me. And I told my boyfriend the same thing, but those are literally the only two people I told. I also had to tell my bosses because I was at work. That was the main reason why I didn't know if I wanted to go or not because like the bells. actually, no, it wasn't. It wasn't the bells. I had two jobs. I was working as bell and I was also working at a restaurant because at this point I didn't have a gig for like two, three weeks. So I was like, Oh, well hopefully I won't be in there two, three weeks. So it wasn't a big deal on that front. So I didn't have to tell the bells. How are you feeling when you finally made it there? When you officially um, admitted yourself? I'm scared, but like, I'm also feeling relieved. Yeah. Already starting to feel relieved. My anxiety was still stupid, stupid, stupid high. But like, I'm like, okay, I feel like I'm about to get help now. Like I, I, the anxiety is now kind of like, reassuring anxiety though it's the same anxiety that was festering but I remember walking in and 
They just checked me to make sure that I didn't have anything that was that that, that I could harm myself with. So like I had to take off. All I can remember is that the room was well lit (laughs) and everyone was just kind of doing their own thing. Like people were looking at me because they knew they they could tell I was new. Like they would look at me and they're like, oh, it's another one or something. So I think we we have an idea of what what you were going through, like what you were thinking and what brought you to the door. So I think it's really interesting to hear that you had already sort of been potentially preparing to go there ahead of time. I think that um, for for many people, like that is a really great sign of um, just maturity in terms of understanding when when you need to really sort of get ahead of something that could be really potentially dangerous. Um, just before going further into your time into the hospital, because I think that will be something that will be really interesting because a lot of people have these um, speculative ideas of what goes on in mental health institutions. And, yeah. you know, this is not a badge of honoring anything. This was just a necessity. I've, I've been admitted, I think, three times in my life. Two were short-term, like yours, two weeks, um, two weeks, three weeks. And one was actually two months. So, so for me, like, it's really important for people to understand that there are these stereotypes of what goes on in mental health wards, like who's actually admitted. And at least in my experience, I realized there were actually even so many people, at least in the state wards that are not even there necessarily for mental health reasons. They're there for learning differences or, and disabilities, which is a whole other topic. But, um, but when you when you first got there, when you first sort of were introduced to the group, you said that you had a sense of relief, which I think is a really interesting demarcator of like maybe accepting your decision. Um, were you nervous to meet meet new people in there or sort of share your story, or did you already feel like because you knew that they were there for similar reasons that you felt okay opening up? Honestly, I felt at the beginning, I didn't know what to feel. So it was already kind of weird, like, talking to people once I actually got a chance to, because that first day, I was tired. Like, I was up all day. I had a really mentally, I had a very mentally taxing morning. I hadn't gone to sleep. And I finally got in around maybe 6, 7 a.m. And there's these um things in the the hospital where they call them group. And it's basically where everybody goes in and every, I think every other hour, just kind of talk about different aspects of like coping mechanisms or whatever the theme is for that, for that group session. But I missed like the first and second one because I was sleeping because I hadn't gotten any sleep. But I remember they also medicated me and I remember, I remember specifically, and it's so weird. There's this old lady who gave me the medication for the first time. I'm already worried because I'm the kind of person that just doesn't want to, I don't want to be medicated by anything. Like I don't want to depend on medication to get me in a better spot. So I felt very, I didn't want to take it 
at first. And like, I was trying to like ask questions like, okay, so what's this going to do to me? Like, is there anything else I can do? Like, do I have to take this? You know, like I was asking all these questions, you know, I just kind of gave in and I was like, okay, fine. And this lady, this older lady, white lady, but she had like this weird, like her eyes were like on like of like a move. Like she looks like one of those like weird creepy ladies from like a movie or whatever with like the, she had like the, she had the medication in, in the little cup and she was just like, you go like that's all i can think of every time that's your first memory (laughs) my first memory of taking like my first and what they gave me was uh i just say zoloft and i just remember the first couple of days feeling i felt very zombie like Mm. but throughout all of that while that was happening i was meeting other people that were in the ward with me. And I think that's where most of my encouragement, my, my light came from during that entire experience. Cause even when I look back, I think of the people that I met there and we still keep in touch with each other to this day. Um, there was definitely one person, a several, but like this one person, um, she was a young black girl. I would say maybe 17, 18 years old. I, she kind of became like my little sister there um, at the time. And she was there for, I think she had tried to, I think she had tried to attempt to kill herself. And she was just so sweet as can be. And like, she reminded me very much of my little sisters and everything. So I think, we kept each other company and would just like always talk to each other, get to know each other. I think that's, um, I don't know if you saw a Terrace house fan, which is this, it's just a Japanese um, reality TV show where they follow the lives of these people that live in a house together, but it's like drama free and recently one of the cast members um, took her own life, which was really heartbreaking to me. And and um, it's just what you said about meeting someone who is so young and, and sweet and sort of um, the fact that a lot of times these are the types of people who are very happy and who are very kind and wanting to make other people happy that forget to tend to their own their own needs who forget to re-nourish themselves and how often it happens. Like um, I was, you just made me think of that when you mentioned your, your in hospital little sister, like that these, these are the personalities that are, that are often choosing to, to leave this life because they don't know what to do with their emotions essentially. Yeah. And like looking at and meeting other people, cause like it's funny. It's funny. Like I got there and I met all these awesome, dope people. I'm like, mm-hmm. why are we here? <laughs> like right. I'm thinking of something like what? Like we even like talked about it. Like we just like what is going on? Like and it's funny. The people that I interacted with throughout the time I was at the hospital was people from different walks of life, white yeah. women, black women, like like everybody. It was different types of people, but we all got along so well. Like older black men, young, younger black men, like teenagers to like 50, 60 year old men, like 
all here for a reason but like we all felt like family it definitely felt like family we're all in this together and by the end of everything like we had developed like this it was it's so I I, I'm sorry I get so happy when I think about these these guys because like they're The main thing you need to know is that all the people that I interacted with were dope. And yeah. the I had like one roommate while I was there. Um and she was dope as well. But she had like red hair and she was like kind of tall. She was kind of the I don't know if you experienced this while you were where where you were, but like there's always that one person that knows about like all the drugs, like what each drug is, like completely. <laughs> and they'll like tell it to you like They'll explain, okay, this is what it does to you. And it's like, oh, uh, you taking that? Oh my gosh. Like, you know, like they, they literally have like all of the information. They're, they're well-versed. Um, well-versed in it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, you know, having her and then like just my little baby sister in the hospital and then just everybody else on top of that. And also like we were definitely also watching the relationships, like romantic relationships develop is always so interesting in the hospital (laughs) yeah like there was one girl that i knew she kind of developed a thing for like one of the guys around our age too and so like they had a little thing like it was just it was just this completely different world and again like this all happened within the span of a week but like it's something (laughs) that i look at and just like think I, i again i do this thing where i try to find the good in things and that that's the good I found in it there were some parts however where I did have to remember oh my gosh I have to return to the real world yeah and it would scare me I did not want to go back um because I felt very safe there with everybody and Mm -hmm. I had elements of the outside world while I was in the mental institution I remember calling my mom and like talking to her every now and then just to, you know, see how she was doing. You know, I, t- I just kept trying to reassure her that I'm here now and I'm okay. Don't worry. Like I'm, I'm fine. Right. Um, but at least within the, the ward that I was at, we could have visitors for one hour a day. And it was usually like after <sighs> my sister and my boyfriend came. They would visit me pretty much every day. If it wasn't my sister, then it was definitely my boyfriend. Right. Um, it was difficult for him to come to see me there. But um, I think it was something that he, in a way, needed to understand the, I don't know what's the right word, to understand the seriousness of it all, I guess. Yeah severity of the yeah the severity of it but he was he was very supportive about me being there there's different things I would like write to him while I was there and like things I would create like we'd have time where we like color and everything and I would just like give it to him as gifts and stuff and so he still keeps all of that for himself and sometimes I'll go back right like now and like read them and I'm like wow like the way that I was like explaining things like it's not normally how I would normally write or like think, but like, because I was in that space while I was there, like I was just, I was in a different 
wavelength like the way that i was writing the way i was speaking was right i think it i think it provides a different level of mental clarity because i mean you touched upon a couple of things so first off is that sense of security so you know oftentimes what brings us into the hospital is a feeling of insecurity self-doubt trying to figure out things that we don't have the answer to trying to commiserate with the fact that we can't control the speed or the process of our lives at a certain point. So in, in this, in this space, in this hospital, you're in a judgment-free zone. You're in a place where, you know, other people um, are going to accept whatever you say that you're feeling because that is just how you feel. And it's not necessarily anything directed towards them. Like they know you're there for you. And then in the case of your partner, like just understanding him having to see that you are hurt for whatever reason, not even relating it to what experiences you guys were going through together, but that you were dealing with a hurt that you were trying to figure out how to work out. So I think everything you said makes a lot of sense because I, I, I think one of the things I love about um, behavioral words and and mental health words is it is a place where many adults in just a short amount of time remember what it feels like to be a kid oh my goodness yes (laughs) yeah and like the lack of social media and like the out like just the lack of being not having to worry about anything except yourself i don't think i never i don't i did not ever have that before until i I went there and i realized how important it was for me to have that leaving whenever i left i was like okay i need to return to this state where i am just with myself are doing your um your social media detox yeah social media distancing like anything to like kind of get me back into that to that vibe um it was something that i wished i was my my thing is is like before all this i'm a very passionate compassionate person like i'm an empathizer to the t like i feel everyone else's energies and like i can put myself in other people's shoes i'm an actress so like that i'm really good at that already so it's just like I could put myself in other people's places and even when I shouldn't, cause there's just times where like, I know, I know now that some instances between others doesn't have to affect me if I don't want it to, but because I just invest myself emotionally in anything that's happening around me, I don't know how to necessarily, sh- I haven't, I had not learned at that point how to analyze, okay, this is not my battle. I don't have to emotionally invest myself in this situation if I don't want to the shift from empathy to sympathy when when it in order to protect yourself essentially Correct. um but my boyfriend it was the first time I had ever remembered seeing him cry it was unfortunately at the point that I saw him crying in front of me because he you know like he it was it was emotional for him. Like I felt sad, but I couldn't cry with him. It was the weirdest thing. And just 
like seeing him there crying my sister as well like so in this instance i'm still fresh into this new like state because of the medication it was weird because my brain was like my brain was sympathizing like or empathizing like it was very much like i felt how i i could I could think about how my sister and my boyfriend were feeling, but I couldn't feel it. Will it bother you? Does it still bother me mm. that I wasn't able to? No, mm. because it was the first time that I was able to rationalize that and know that it is possible for me to understand how someone is feeling and not actually feel it. Right. You know that you still care even though you're not taking on their emotions. Correct. Right. Yes, right. exactly. So in that instance, I learned a, I learned a lot just through those instances. But it was funny because after they would leave, and especially after my boyfriend would leave, there were definitely a few points after I guess the medication wore, like it kind of came, it kind of started working, I guess. I was able to start feeling a little bit again. Yeah. And I was able to start crying again. Mm. At first, I wasn't able to cry at all. I think me being able to cry reassured myself that this medication was going to be okay. Like I was still able to feel things because yeah. I missed, I think even now, like when I contemplate taking the medication, I'm like, I don't want to not feel because I, I, there's certain things, there's certain aspects about Zoloft that, kind of numb me to certain things and certain some of it's good some of it's bad like the good thing is that like I can rationalize easier and I'm not getting emotionally invested in it as much but the some of the downfalls for sure it's like I can't be as compassionate I I don't feel like I'd like to be able to, to feel things and I can't and one of the main things like especially like if I'm having sex like I can't feel nearly as like it takes forever for me to to get all the way there like it just takes longer so I just my sex drive it is wonky sometimes but I find that if I keep taking the medication however my body settles into it and then I'm good again well I'm glad I think that that is a really good point to bring up because I think it's it's something that people are generally worried about when it comes to taking medication is like the ability to feel whether that's physically or emotionally. And, and, um, you know, for, for me, when I am, when I'm severely depressed, I, I tend to go into levels of apathy. So then I can't, you know, like I can't even tell like, would it, would it be medication or not? But I think that is, it is a valid point to sort of bring up that fact that not all medication works for for certain people like um, that it's, it's, I think the hardest part about seeking care because what I, even like what I would call like just tune ups where you're not in a very severe depressive crisis, but you know that you're feeling low. So you want to maybe find a therapist or start medication temporarily. And you have to like try different things um, in order to know what's best for you. Like, my experience with Zoloft was not great. It was, it was, um, it was very dangerous. It was actually like, um, in Zoloft is hit or miss. Like you mentioned, like I, when I was put on Zoloft, uh, 
I was titrated up too quickly. And that's when it, it sent me into crisis where I was like, I was so apathetic and free floating that I, but I was still depressed. So that's when I was like, Oh, I guess, I guess this is the end, you know, like I had already come to a decision, which it doesn't mean it doesn't work for people. But when it's, when it's like finding that balance is tricky because you're like, you're playing uh chemic in your head and you can, and you, you can't see anything that's going on. So, um, mm. So that that makes a lot of sense, but I think to that point also is like for me, it took me a while to understand like when was it okay for me to start coming off medication because that because um, my my experience with hospitalization happened um, when I was twenty two twenty three both of those years, and so for me it took a little bit of um, time maybe when I was 25 26 to realize like I think I'm I'm ready to move on and learn how to take the things that I've learned and incorporate them into my life and see how I do and and not um and not sort of live in the stigma that um I'll have failed if I ever have to go back yeah yeah um, so your experience with Zoloft, I just quick question, because I know for me, when I first, when they first put me on it, I think they had put on, put me on a higher dosage than like I ended mm-hmm. up doing, I, I ended up like taking once I got out, but I remember at least for the first day or two feeling very fidgety. Mm-hmm. Do you remember did when you started taking it, did you feel fidgety at all? Oh, well, God. I was like, for me, it was like a fidget where like. It was weird. Like it would just, it almost feel like I had Tourette's or something. Like it just felt like I just kept like, like cocking my head to the side and like, I just couldn't control it. It was weird. It was like a spasm situation. I think some people do get like, um, like feel tingling sensation. Cause I mean, if, cause if you think about it, like these are, if these chemicals are affecting your, your dopamine and oxytocin levels, like which energize you, that makes sense that that's going to affect some parts of your body um for it's just for me it was it was many moons ago which is probably why i can't i can't recall but um but i think it took i think it took me a while to get settled into the into the medication um so at one point i at one point i was like oh this doesn't work and i was like oh i feel super happy and i i think that for some reason with Zoloft, it can really sort of like spike things in your body quicker than other medications that I've had. And this is not me shitting on Zoloft for anyone. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Just how my body was like, not for us. We need something slow moving, you know, something to match your personality. So, (laughs) (laughs) you know, I think the, the part that I find really interesting is the visits. So like those moments where, because as you were describing your experience, mine started flashing back in my head where I'm like, mm-hmm. oh, yeah, like having, meeting your new roommate, knowing that your roommate could leave before you and after you've gotten to know them. Yeah. And um, so I think I'm, I'm curious to know um, when you went in, because you still lived at home, right? Yes. Prior, yeah. When you went in, 
did you feel concerned at first that this experience was sort of going to be hanging over your head or did you know that people were going to be supportive um, just based on your relationships with them? I wasn't honestly sure at that moment. All I knew when I was there and I kept getting reassured by this, by like everyone around me, including my family and my boyfriend or my sister and my boyfriend that I'm here for me and whatever happens out, like once I leave, like, you know, they were going to be there with me, whatever happened. So like, I definitely felt reassured. So I wasn't worried about what was going to be hanging over my head once I got out because I knew once I got in there that I had already done the best thing that I could for myself mm-hmm. and that I if anyone was going to try to hang it over my head I was just going to like my life and the the productivity the the flourish the uh, the rejuvenation of my life would be their answer if they're going to hang it over me, you know? So I was just like, you know, forget everybody else. Like this is, this is what I need to thrive. thrive. And, um, so no, I, I wasn't worried about that. I wasn't worried about anyone hanging it over my head because I don't, thankfully, I don't think I have any, I don't think I have any family members or friends who would do that at this point in this point in my life. And, at that time, like everyone was already more understanding of my decisions and things that I wanted to do with my life. I would say most people, not all, but most. So yeah. I most knew I had more, I, I had more support than I would have naysayers. Right. I think that's great to hear because, so I'm, I'm Ghanaian and Ugandan and, um, and so similar story to what you mentioned in terms of fitting in but then adding this whole aspect of growing up learning about Ghanaian culture and trying to fit in as a Ghanaian American Mm -hmm. was was a little bit interesting but so many of the parallels of you know the the U.S. Black community and the African Black community are the same when it comes to mental wellness and how to manage it so I for me I feel like in the beginning I had to very much convince my family that I wasn't well but it took I think it for me I think it took years and that's not to say that they weren't listening it's not to say that they didn't necessarily believe me but it was the same as you mentioned they were kind of like oh you just you just gotta think positively (laughs) like just don't worry listen to don't listen to sad songs or things like that. And I, and I, I'm realizing now as we're older that I don't even think it's, um, I think it has less to do with us and more as like, as parents and elders not wanting to feel like you're in pain. So they're coming up with these ideas of quick solutions because they, they don't want to feel or believe that that something is wrong with you, you know, like um, the same way where we feel like that if something's wrong with us, we're letting people down that when people hear that something isn't right with us, they feel like they've let us down. Right. I also feel that our, at least our elders, at least, yeah, especially in the black communities, 
there's not much resources for us in the first place. And when it comes to our mental health, there has never really been a resource except for church and everything that we go to in order to deal with our emotions. But even then there's still like a toxicity of everything in it. That's just, it's just generational generational things that just never got corrected like definitely a lot of if I had and I always say this I say if I had if I had elders who had actually taken the time for themselves I feel like their entire the entirety of their life was always to help someone else to always you know, provide for someone else that they never had a chance to provide for themselves. I feel like if they were able to even have a glimpse of it, even if it was for like a year, I feel like the course of their life and their mental health would be so much more sound. And the anxiety that I feel now because of their lack of having that resource I feel like I would be in a better place. But because that didn't happen, like I know I have to be that person that I needed when I was a child, if that makes sense. So I want to be that adult for my future children. Yeah. No, my twin sister just posted, uh, retweeted something last night that was saying exactly what you said about how um, sort of like re reparenting or i uh, excuse me, I'm probably saying that incorrectly. I think I know exactly what you're talking about, actually. Uh, I think I but, it myself. Let me see oh, if I can. really, yeah, just reparenting you is is telling yourself what you needed to hear yeah. from your parents when you were a child. And um, and I think a lot of it is like, it's like they're, just as we are learning and, and growing, like they are as well. They're just doing it they're just a couple decades older than us in their process, you know? Yeah. Um, I think, um, you know, before tying it up, I, you brought up something indirectly extremely important that is a difficult point is the access to seeking help, the, the ability to pay. Cause I know that I was like, I was in debt, girl, after I was in the hospital. I didn't have a job for two months the next time. And I I had to move out of my apartment. Like my best friend was no longer my best friend. Like things change for you. Like you you go in to feel better and you feel great because like you're away from the outside world and like then it kind of Then you return back and it's like Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. But the I think what I, I enjoyed too when I was there was like people were already saying okay you're about to return back to the real world Mm -hmm. and you don't want to come back here what Mm -hmm. are you going you need to do this with your life or now you're going to like you're really going to be able to see what you need to change in your life in order for you to not have to be on this medication anymore if that makes any sense at all so it's like i knew for myself i was like okay i know i'm going to be fresh out of the hospital Right. Anything that gives me anxiety now, I'm going to be able to pinpoint it. And if it gives me anxiety, I can explain why. And the other thing was, was like, 
once I know it gave me that, do I want to continue being around things that gave me that? Right, right. right. And that was the harder part because now I know, okay, Sometimes, I mean, in this instance, I was like, I couldn't live at my house. I couldn't live at the family home anymore because I was going back into old habits Mm -hmm. and I was a new person. I was thriving. I knew I couldn't be in that environment anymore if I was going to thrive even more. So, Mm -hmm. and I, I mean, at this point I've told the people that I'm around that is that is witnessing me telling them I'm getting anxiety from this or like like this is why like I'm telling people why I'm feeling this way and it's and it's still getting disregarded even after I've gotten out of the hospital I was like yo then I have to go <laughs> like I, I can't I can't stay in this environment anymore yeah like bye <laughs> yeah letting go of things that aren't serving you yeah now and now, and mm-hmm. now I live by myself. Yes, girl. I'm (laughs) jealous. That was that. That's long story short. (laughs) Now, as to everything that has happened after that, I've flourished in so many ways that the self-aware millennial became a thing because of all of that. But it took a lot, like, even just talking about my mental health journey just within the hospital situation, I can already feel my brain like kind of feeling exhausted about talking about it, but like exhausted in a way it's almost like, like I finished a marathon and I've just gotten a prize. Yeah. You know, you've overcome that, that yeah. goal or, or it's still, it's still a journey, but I mean, in, I guess I'll ask you um, the last thing we as black women you know, we've, we've addressed this a few times is that we have these stigmas of being caregivers of always being perfect and chipper and cheery and, um, and not knowing when to sort of go on our own and stop asking for advice. So I guess what is something that you really want to give as guidance for any other of the young, bright, women that are are struggling or trying to deal with unknown emotions when they're kind of up against maybe when they don't have support or when they're up against a situation where they're just not sure what to do Hmm. I think the main thing that I would tell them if they don't do anything else seek a therapist Mm -hmm. seek a therapist that's what they're there for there are like there are therapists and all like for all different types of incomes there are therapists that you can just talk to online um talk to a if you don't want to have talk to a therapist talk to a friend talk to a family member but before you do that i think there's a big thing that i i feel like it is important especially in this day and age and i learned this a lot within the last couple of years is consent so if you're going to go to a friend or a family member about it make sure that your friend and family member or family member is in a sound and mentally prepared state to hear what you have to say Mm. um and sometimes they can they can like most of them because they love you so much they're going to hear you out 
but prepare them. Tell them that you need to talk about something so that they can mentally prepare themselves or, you know, ask if it's okay. Make sure that they're mentally sound because you don't want to be talking to another mentally unsound person about you being mm-hmm. mentally unsound because that, that's not healthy. You need somebody that can be the be there for you while you're mm-hmm. trying to speak about whatever you need to speak about. That's fantastic advice because honestly, um, I can't tell you how many times like people kind of shut down when they don't know what to do or how to how to deal with difficult topics. So um, that's extremely yeah. good advice. Yeah, I, I used to do that. I was starting to learn. Well, my thing is, is growing up, this is another thing about the black community. It's so difficult for younger kids to speak up for themselves mm-hmm. ever. Like they don't have a say about anything, even if they are completely in the right. Like I've seen a few self-work kids in my day. And the main thing that I've noticed about their parents is that they listen to the kids as though that they're their own person, as though they're, they are an adult themselves. And they treat the kids as so they treat them like they make sure before they start talking about the kid with something that they're comfortable with it. And I think in the black community, it's like, Oh, kids, you know, like they, they don't deserve that. Like they, they're still learning. They don't know what they want. Like they, they, they basically just, they shut them out and they, 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 they just assume things they, they, and, and they, I guess they're maybe taking it off of how they were as kids. I was agreeing with you that it's trained obedience, but sometimes to the detriment of a child. Yeah. But I also find that it's interesting because when these kids, when our parents were kids, their parents are doing the same thing. So it was like, in a way it's, it's all continual because there's never been an adult that treated a child like more of like an adult when they were younger. The reason why they're like, well, when I was a kid, I didn't know anything. Well, that was because none of the adults in your life were treating you as so <laughs> they weren't giving you all the information that you needed that you could handle right. at a, at, at a child's age. But like, ugh, anyway, that is another, that is another episode for another day um (laughs) but overall black kids especially in the in the black community or anything that's gonna it basically a child cannot tell an adult about themselves um in the black community without some sort of repercussion like i was not prepared at all when I was there to live on my own, like there are no resources from anybody in there that could <laughs> teach me that. And I honestly right. realized why it's because everybody that lived in the house never lived on their own and mm-hmm. could teach me how to do that. So it's, and that's so interesting. Sorry. I just reckon, I just realized that <laughs> I've never thought about it that way. <laughs> that is amazing. But that's great. I mean, I did not. Sorry. I'm like, yeah, thank you for helping me realize that. (laughs) No problem. I mean, honestly, from my perspective, you've come a long way. And this just seems like the beginning of your journey. I am only a couple years older than you. And I can see the parallels of each stage of your 20s, sort of like 
cutting through these the woods with a machete like oh what's what's coming next and right. I I really appreciate you sharing your story and your your perspective um, because I think it will encourage a lot of other young black women to first of all in terms of your dreams to go for them and then in terms of knowing when when things are not okay or not the best or where you want them to be that it's okay to to find a space for yourself um, whether that's seeking professional help or or just finding other ways to cope so um so thank you jay mix and everyone you heard her um go seek out a therapist (laughs) out there Um. And, and i mean there's other ways to cope honestly but i think for me having a therapist to talk to weekly or someone of some counselor, somebody to at least speak to weekly about what's going on in my life. Even if everything's going well, like it's so good to just like kind of reflect on it with someone else that can look at it from the outside and sometimes remind you of like how far you've come sometimes too. Like they're following your life. Like, and it's, it's wonderful to have someone that can analyze it from the outside that does not have an emotional attachment to you. Totally. Totally. Yeah. Well, thank you for joining us. Um, I'm going to add, um, I'm going to add all of your details in the post credits and in the show notes for everyone to find out where to check out the self-aware millennial. Um, And I really hope that, you'll be able to come back to the show and um and so we can have another open discussion thanks yeah i, I have a lot to say clearly <laughs> it, <But>. yeah <laughs> and this is just one aspect of my whole life so but it's a very important aspect like this is why i'm doing what i do now and it's put a lot of things into perspective for me I would say so happy that Christina has connected us because now I'm I'm just so excited for you and I'm 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 ready. I'm just so excited for you to <laughs> let's take over the world. <laughs> yes. <laughs> now the topics that we discussed around mental health are very important. So if you or anyone that you know are in danger, there's also a number on the show notes for a hotline that you can follow if you ever need help. And if it's an emergency, call 911. Thank you so much for listening. And thanks again to Jay Mix. Really carving out a space for herself and was aware enough of her needs and what she wanted in her life to take a difficult step and make a difficult choice that isn't always the most popular choice. And that's us as Black women in the community taking care of our mental health. If you want to know more about Jane Mix and where to follow her, all of her information is in the drop-down in the show notes or on our website, onlyblackgirlonmars.com backslash podcast. I've also written a small spotlight on Jane Mix in conjunction with this episode if you wanted to learn a little bit more about her and how she came up with the idea for the self-aware moment. Like and subscribe for your passport on Mars, and I'll see you next time. Let's take over the world. Yes.